Welcome FEI Engage subscribers. My name's Olivia Berkman, and this episode is a conversation with EY's Orlin Boston, recorded on National Coming Out Day, October 11th, 2021. Orlin discusses the experience of coming out to colleagues, how to be an ally to the LGBTQ community, and his involvement with the Trevor Project. Please enjoy the conversation. It is now FEI's pleasure to introduce Olivia Berkman. Thank you, Shivani. Hi, everyone. Welcome to How I Got Here. I'm Olivia Berkman, Managing Editor of FEI Daily. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Orlin Boston, Senior Partner in EY's Global Life Sciences and Healthcare Practice. Orlin serves as EY America's ESG Markets Leader, leading the creation and integration of existing offerings to create a comprehensive ESG go-to-market solution and identifying emerging opportunities in this rapid evolving market. His consulting career spans strategy, operations, transformation, and M&A strategy, and transactions across healthcare, life sciences, consumer products, and technology sectors. Before we speak to Orlin, I'd like to uh, share that we'll be launching FEI Engage, as a lot of you know, a new content subscriptions uh, program for undergraduate, graduate, and early career finance and accounting students and professionals. Subscribers will have the opportunity to connect with FEI members and industry leaders through our Mentor Match program, connect with each other within the Engage community through a private online networking platform, and have access to these How I Got Here live Q&As. If you'd like to learn more, you can email me directly at feiengage at financialexecutives.org. And now I'd like to introduce Orlin. Orlin, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, great to be with you, Olivia, and uh, with with all of your viewers. Yeah. So um, I'd love, Orlin, for you to just start by giving us a little bit of background. How did you arrive at EY? What's your journey sort of been like? And, And then maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you got into the ESG area. Sure. Well, look, I think my, my journey to professional services is one that I, I can't say I necessarily predicted uh, would, would play out that way. Uh, I, uh, first of all, I grew up outside of the U.S. Uh, I'm a Navy brat, U.S. Navy brat, uh, spent most of my life on a, on a military base uh, and then knew I wanted to come back to the States uh, and I wanted to study business and specifically finance uh, and, international, and, and uh, international business. And so I was lucky enough to get into NYU. And I went to Stern undergrad, but you know my goal was all right. Finance major, like most NYU Stern grads, uh, you're going to go into investment banking, you know, or sales and trading, and that's what I expected I would what would happen. And uh, lo and behold, I ended up uh, you know meeting um, uh, some folks at Deloitte, uh, and uh, they sort of opened my eyes to this this, this profession of professional services uh, and management consulting, which I really didn't know much about. Uh, but as I learned more about it, I sort of realized, oh, actually, you know, my background uh, lends itself well. Uh, I mean, I may not be, you know, have a particular subject matter expertise other than what I learned in college uh, uh, around business and finance, but I could see myself working in this sort of environment and uh, with with a, a big four firm. Uh, and so that's how I got introduced to professional services. I started off my career at uh, Deloitte Consulting. Uh, was uh, fortunate to be there for 13 years, rise up through the ranks, become a partner uh, there uh, where, where I served as a partner for five years. And I, 
had uh, a number of different leadership roles. But getting to, to EY, which I've now been with EY since 2012, um, yeah, that was not an easy decision. Uh, I mean, things were going very well for me at Deloitte. I still have a lot of, a lot of love for Deloitte and a lot of my, uh, my friends that are still there. Uh, but I was sort of faced with an opportunity to grow as a leader even though I was quite comfortable as a leader where I was uh, at the time. Uh, and that's what EY offered me was an opportunity to grow, take on a senior partner role, uh, run their America's Life Sciences uh, M&A business. Uh, I knew that would be a stretch leadership growth opportunity for me. So I decided to uh, put myself in an uncomfortable position uh, and in a way almost start over. And so that was sort of my entry point uh, at EY. And that was uh, back in 2012. And what appeals to you about an ESG sustainability kind of leadership role? You know, it's it's sort of a new type of role, right? Uh, I mean, ESG uh, is is probably something that we weren't talking, you know, we weren't really calling it that a couple of years ago necessarily. Now it's such a popular, you know, and hot part of our uh, our business lexicon, right? Uh, and so, you know, for me, when uh, when I had the opportunity to take on this leadership role. And, uh, when our, our, our firm leadership asked me to take it on, uh, it, it gelled well with uh, my background, my interests, my passions, um, and where the um, current zeitgeist in business is uh, and where it's going to be for quite some time, I, I, I would say at least the next 10 years or so. And so when I sort of looked at you know the things that I, I was passionate about uh, in civil rights and social justice, uh, in, in you know, with the environment, um, board issues, uh, how do you, you know, uh, corporate social responsibility, DE&I, these are all things that I really, really was passionate about. And I, I used to do sort of uh, with my extracurricular time, uh, philanthropic efforts, charities, boards uh, for nonprofits. And uh, when the opportunity came up to actually make that part of my day job, a core part of my day job, and working with our most important clients to become more sustainable. Because uh, at the end of the day, sustainability is about, are you going to be around here in 10 years? Is the business going to be around here in 20, 30 years, right? And that, of course, involves environmental considerations, social considerations, and again, putting in place the right governance in which to ensure sustainability for your employees, for the planet, for your investors, for regulators, for the communities that you operate in. So before I jump to the next question, I just want to remind the audience that um, you can submit questions for Orlin and I'll kind of weave them into our conversation. So today we are celebrating National Coming Out Day, and this can obviously be a very scary thing for people to uh, come out to friends and family. I imagine that coming out to colleagues is a whole other process. So if you would, please, how did you come out to your colleagues and mm-hmm. how do you think it was different than coming out to friends, family? Tell us a little bit about your experience. So look, this was something that, uh, that I obviously thought about, uh, you know, quite a bit. Uh, now this was, this was when I was in college. I mean, um, I mean, I came out in college, uh, and, Fortunately, I was in an environment which was conducive to that, being at NYU, living in New York City, our campus predominantly uh, in Greenwich Village. So a lot of multicultural, you know, and diversity made it easier. It wasn't hard. It wasn't it wasn't easy. It was still hard, but it was it was easier to do that there. But I also struggled with, OK, well, am I going to, you know, 
this is uh, this is also sort of you know late 90s i would say you know am i going to be able to be who i am and be open about who i am uh in in you know on wall street you know in uh in financial services in professional services and i didn't know that you don't know that right um uh until you you get to know the culture of a company um, and a firm. And, uh, you know, I, I remember going through the interview process uh, at Deloitte at the time. And, uh, you know, a few folks, senior leaders were openly gay. And that really sent a very, very positive and strong message to me that, wait a minute, I'm not going to have to be closeted, you know, at, uh, in my first, you know, major you know, career job. Uh, because they're obviously at a level in the firm um, where it hasn't been, um, you know, hasn't hasn't been uh, hasn't had a negative effect on them. And so, I actually came out, uh, you know, right from the beginning. It was a big risk, though. I mean, it is risky when you're when you're just starting a career, you're just building your brand in in a firm, in an industry, in a profession, uh, and so um, it is risky. But boy, was that the right decision for me? Uh, because what I soon realized was being different can actually be very much an advantage. It doesn't have to be a negative. Uh, it's all about sort of how you view it. And yes, your circumstances are different depending on where you live, what industry you're in, what company you're in. But that was the decision that I chose and I never looked back. And it was the best decision of my life uh, because the amount of energy psychological, psychic, whatever you want to call it, mental, emotion, emotional energy that goes into compartmentalizing your life like that is extreme. Uh, it's detrimental to your wellness, your own, your health. And frankly, your, you know, your, your, your company's not going to get the most out of you. And so for me, it was just a huge weight off my shoulders. Um, the majority, the vast majority of uh, my colleagues were totally cool with it uh, and very uh, embracing. So I was very fortunate. Yeah, that's wonderful. And then you were asking, like, well, how's that different from coming out yeah. uh, to your family uh, and friends? Well, it is different in that you know, you're likely to know your family longer, right, than your colleagues. <laughs> uh, you're likely to know your friends longer than your, than your colleagues. Uh, so you have a better sense of sort of what their belief systems are, their values, um, their unconditional, you know, love for you. And so, you know, hopefully you have that. Uh, but what I can say is that, you know, I, I did come out to my family first and had I not done that, I wouldn't have had the confidence and the support in which to then come out to my colleagues at work. Having that support, that foundational support and unconditional love and support at home makes it so much easier to go out into the world uh, and do it there. So in, I'm sure you've had these conversations before and if, if you were talking to somebody who is considering coming out to their colleagues, coming out at work. <clears throat> How do you talk to them? I mean, what are the, some of the, the takeaways that you have from your experience? What are some of the lessons that you've kind of learned along the way? Well, I think uh, first and foremost, um, you know, we're, we're fortunately in a better place. You know, we're living in a better time where, uh, where, where, where more people with diversity can be open uh, and visible. And so, you know, when I, when I came out, uh, I, you know, while there were people who were 
in fairly senior roles that were, were out and open, there, there weren't any partners that I knew of, you know, and that's like the, you know, that's, the, that's, that's the, 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 the executive, you know, layer for, uh, for any professional services firm is partners. And so I, I didn't, I didn't know of any partners that were openly gay, at least when I came out. And so now that's different. Um, I mean, at EY, at Deloitte, at other big four firms, other professional services firms, uh, it's different. Uh, you ha- you see visible role models that you just didn't have before. So my advice is reach out to them. You know, uh, I I did, uh, and uh, you know nine out of ten times, I mean it was a, it was I, I got a response. You know, and I think what you'll find is uh, many of us you know remember what it was like, and so we're absolutely willing to to have that kind of conversation. I mean, I'm very visible, uh, and I am very visible because I have a responsibility. I am a senior partner uh, at EY uh, and in a, you know in professional services, and so I want people to come to me with uh, you know with questions about 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 coming out and how I can be supportive to our staff. And so I've had many 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 conversations, and so I tell them you know reach out to those of us who've been you know who've been in your shoes um, and have made mistakes uh, and are willing to share those. Uh, and then I also think is you know there are organizations, business resource groups, employee resource groups at most companies uh, that are LGBT, you know, focused affinity groups and ERG groups, tap into those. Um, uh, and sometimes, you know, you can even do that as an ally if you're not even ready to come out because many of those uh, affinity groups are, in, you know, inclusive of, of allies. And that's that's really important. But that's one way to also plug into uh, uh, plug into your firm's network and many opportunities that can 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 arise from there. I mean, your story just really <clears throat> reminds us of the importance of seeing people like you in leadership. And now, of course, you're a partner with EY. And so <clears throat> can you tell us what type of mental health and well-being support you provide your team? So, look, I am, you know, I, I, I've had the good fortune to, to have many, many teams, build many teams uh, at Deloitte and, and here at EY uh, over the last nine years. Uh, I, I emphasize to them that wellness, uh, physical wellness, uh, physical activity is really, really important. I, I, I am not uh, shy about the fact that it's important to me. Uh, so, I mean, during these last 18 months, I can't tell you how many walking conference calls I had, right, with my team, with clients. And I, I role model that, you know, I tell them, I said, you know what, let's, let's do a walking conference call. You know, uh, so you can get out of your, you know, get out of your apartment, get out of your room, get out of your office. Uh, so you, you, you give them permission to do that. I also uh, have had, yeah, I, I, I've been, I've had candid conversations, you know, uh, about about mental health, uh, especially these last eighteen months. Um, as you know, I you know work with the Trevor Project, and we'll talk a bit more about that. But mental health is a big part of what we do, what we focus on. And these last eighteen months have been unprecedented, really unprecedented from a mental health perspective all over the world. It's it's. I mean, when's the last time the world basically stopped on its axis? Uh, its axis uh, that had tremendous uh, implications for the mental health and well-being of of all humans, and especially employees. And so. You know, I went out of my way to reach out to my friends and colleagues who were single, who who, who were who were ex- experiencing this by themselves, right? Um, I went out of my way to let 
friends and colleagues know that if they're in any kind of pain and I just don't know it, uh, know that I'm willing to be, you know, uh, 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 you know, a shoulder to sort of, you know, lean on, you know, and, and so I just tried to send a lot of signals, um, out to my teams and my friends and colleagues that it's okay to feel down and have blue days and, but, you know, don't do anything extreme, you know, uh, talk to me, talk to your friends, talk to your family before you ever feel you need to do that. Yeah. You're making me think of something that I've learned. Uh, if someone in your life is sick or, you know, just had a baby, uh, that instead of asking, what can I do? Do you need help? Um, to just be proactive and just go ahead and do the thing and not have the person, you know, ask for it. And, and I was just reminded of that. I think it's, uh, it's interesting that, your approach is to be proactive and to reach out and say, Hey, I don't know if something's going on with you. You may be, you know, the picture of health right now, but if anything's up, I'm here. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good lesson for us. Yeah. Because you cannot, you just can't take things for granted. You don't know when someone's in pain. Uh, You're not always going to know that. Um, And, and I've unfortunately learned that the hard way. I've, I've had two really, I mean, two of my best friends, commit suicide. And that was awful. And that's happened in the last 18 months. And, and, and I never, ever sensed anything. Um, I didn't see those signs. And so I just don't take that for granted. And so I, would rather, I'd, I'd rather be scolded for like being too presumptive, you know, uh, about someone's mental health than, um, than not. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry to hear that. That's, that's really devastating. You, you mentioned, um, you know, that you had some concerns about being your authentic self at, at work. And, and I think a lot of us think about that, whether we're in an interview or we're just starting a new job um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, how, how authentic should I be? How true to myself should I be? How much should I hold back in a professional setting? How do you kind of think about that now at this stage in your career, was there ever a time where you did feel like you were holding back and, um, and you have, you know, regrets about that or, or what's, what's the, how do you think about that now? How authentic to be professionally? Yeah, I think it is, you know, being authentic and and to yourself and who you are. I mean, it's a balance. I mean, you know, at work, it really is. Uh, and, and it also varies on sort of, you know, what stage in your career you're at, right? You know, you'll have more confidence generally, the more experienced you are. Um, so I think, you know, starting off, I mean, for me, uh, yes, I came out uh, uh, from from a sexual orientation perspective, but I, you know, I also had to sometimes come out, you know, from my own ethnicity and, and racial perspective, right? My father is African-American, my mother's um, uh, uh, from Spain, uh, is Hispanic, and so, not everyone always knew that about me. They just, they knew I was a person of color, but they didn't know necessarily what color. Uh, and so I, I found like I was, uh, you know, I'd come out about that all the time, <laughs> you know, all three of these aspects, but I did that, I think in a more natural way. I mean, I would just talk about it in the same way that anyone talks about where they're from, uh, their culture, the music they love, what they did over the weekend, you know, what, 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 you know, organizations do you volunteer for? What do you watch on TV? I mean, some more natural ways to do that. But what was important early on, at least in my career, and this is a conscious decision I made, was performance. 
right on the job performance. Uh, that is the priority. I mean, at the end of the day, you work in a company. Um, uh, and, you know, whether it's a uh, for profit you know, company or a nonprofit company, you still have to deliver performance because if you're not delivering performance. The other things are really um, secondary to them. Now, you also don't want to be delivering performance at all, you know, at, at the cost of your own happiness, your own wellness, your integrity, your values. Right. And so you do have to weigh all of that. But, you know, early on in my career, I was very much focused on, all right, I'm going to kick butt, you know, at work and I'm going to deliver performance. And that's going to set the stage for other things that I may want to do. And that's that's how I spent the, the first few years of my career was very much delivering on my client engagements, uh, you know, getting good reviews, uh, immersing myself in, 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 in my firm and various activities uh, in my firm and organizations that we're, we're a part of. Uh, and that went very well for me. I mean, that paid off. And then as I built this track record of performance, you know what? You build trust and credibility and more autonomy comes your way. Uh, certainly the more senior you become. And so as I became more senior and certainly, you know, becoming a partner, you know, I'd say after the first couple of years of being a partner, because once you become a partner, you know, you think it, you, you think it's like the pinnacle, but no, you're just sort of at, now at the bottom of a new totem pole, right? So, so your first two, three years, you got to prove that they made the right decision by promoting you to partner. So, you know, performance again is really, really important. But I, I found that after my first, uh, sec- my second or third year of being a partner, had a lot more latitude, more control over my time and the things that I wanted to do, uh, you know, both at work and outside of work that made sense for work and for me personally. That's a great segue because I want you to talk about some of the, what you called your extracurriculars. Um, <clears throat> so tell us more about your strategic side gigs approach. Uh, what does that yeah. mean? So first of all, I have to, I have to give HBR credit here because they came up with the title strategic side gig. I think, you know, me and my, my co-author, I forgot what we were calling it, but I, when, when they said strategic side gigs, I was like, that's right. That's, that's, that's a good way to um, call, you know, uh, call the article and name the article. So, you know, this strategic side gig philosophy is really grounded in this career portfolio philosophy that, uh, that I sort of just, I learned over time. Um, uh, and, it was sort of this idea of not waiting till you retire to like create your retirement portfolio, you know, from a career perspective, uh, but actually what being deliberate as you are growing in a, in a profession, in a company, uh, growing as a leader, uh, uh, and, and, and creating the right portfolio that will help you become a better leader and grow as a leader. And so, uh, the idea was really that, uh, going back to performance, the end of the day, you want to be performing at your day job, right? So your day job is right in the center uh, of the portfolio. Uh, and in my case, it was either Deloitte or, or EY, right? Where, where, where I've been now for the last nine years. Um, and, and so it's EY and my clients that are in the center of this portfolio. And that influences the passion projects or strategic side gigs that I take on. And they're strategic because they are tied to my day job at EY and my clients, and they're tied to EY's purpose of building a better working world. Uh, our strategy uh, uh, and vision uh, around building long-term value for our clients 
uh, all of it is tied to that, right? So whether it's, uh, you know, boards that I serve on um, uh, that are nonprofits that are tied to social justice uh, or diversity and inclusion in some way, whether it's a Trevor Project or it's uh, the, the, the USO Board of Governors uh, or it's uh, the Goldman Sachs launch, which yes, uh, board that's focused on uh, investing in the next generation of black, Latinx and, and, and women entrepreneurs in, in the technology industry. These are all things that I'm personally passionate about, uh, but they're also things that align to EY strategy, right? And our, and our mission and our vision and our purpose. And so being deliberate and therefore strategic about the things that you do outside of your day job, making sure that they're synergistic with your day job results in creating what could be this sort of a symbiotic career portfolio that allows you to become a better leader uh, stretch yourself, build new leadership competencies. Uh, and so that's been, that was sort of my, my secret, <laughs> I guess, you know, it was just, it was just, uh, it wasn't someone that didn't necessarily teach me, but it was just something that I realized it's like, wait a minute, by doing these other things that are tied to, to our company's strategy and our, our, our clients, uh, values and strategies. Wow. That can make me a better partner. That, that can be, that can be make, make me more innovative, more creative, build a better network. I mean, so it just became this sort of virtuous uh, success life, you know, cycle um, that continues to this day. As a partner, you've been able to incorporate, you know, your kind of passion projects and you have a, a very holistic approach. Um, a question from the audience, uh, they wrote, hi, you've written a really insightful piece in Harvard Business Review on the strategic side gig. How can someone starting their career embrace that thinking when their primary career occupies so much time? So I, you can think back to your yeah. early days at Deloitte. Yes, you know, and and, and I, I do think back to those days because I, I remember being so overwhelmed, <laughs> you know, just starting this new career in this new profession. Uh, and, and look, it's very demanding. I mean, we're all uh, in very demanding jobs. But what I find is passion overcomes that hesitancy uh, and that fear and that, um, how would I say, uh, ability to sort of make time. And so it starts with passion. You know, if it feels like more work, then you can have a hard time making time for it. But if you have this emotional connection uh, to whatever it is, it can be a nonprofit. It can be, you know, writing a you know writing a book or an article about a topic that you're passionate about, or or, or just learning you know learning something, a new subject matter um, that you want to learn. You're you're gonna carve the time out for it because it fulfills you in some way, right? You're, you're, you're passionate. You're, it fulfills you know, your, curio your curiosity. So it's got to start with passion. Second, then yes, it's got to align with your, your, your day job. Uh, and so if it's not aligned with your day job, then it's so separate and so disparate that, it, yeah, it might, you know, you might enjoy it, but it doesn't benefit your day job and your company and you lose that synergy. So, you know, when, in my case, you know, I, I, I serve on the board of governors of the USO. Well, that was a passion for me because I'm a, I'm a Navy brat and I grew up on, on, on military bases, but it's a passion for EY because we hire a lot of veterans. We're very committed to, in, uh, to supporting and investing in our veterans community. Uh, and so 
I'm sort of, you know, I don't want to say I'm killing two birds with one stone, but I kind of am, right? It's like I'm doing work that I care about, um, uh, and I'm doing work that EY cares about. So I'm bringing my work and my passion together, right? So, so I think it's about looking for that, you know, the passion. You know, are you passionate about it? Is it synergistic? Um, start with one, and when you start with one and uh, you enjoy it and you're successful at it it tends to open up other ones. And so that's what happened to me. I mean, I started with one and then it led to another. And then it just sort of led to you know, many more uh, you know, doors and windows opening for me. And then as you uh, do more of it, you get a lot better at it. Uh, time management becomes a lot easier and you're just smarter about which, which ones you get involved with and which ones you say no to or not now. Was learning to say no something that came comes easily to you, or is that uh, something that you had to work on? So I imagine a lo- you get a lot of opportunities, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I, it was not something that that was easy for me. You know, I, I'm more of a pleaser, uh, especially working in client service. I mean, that's just the nature of of, of any client service professional. We want to please, right? And so it was hard to say no, you know. Um, but it's an important. Uh, you know, skill to learn because you don't want to just say no, you know, you want to, there's different ways to say no, right? There's, you know, no, you know, not now it's not no, but just not now, or it's no, but how about this person, you know, and here's why this person would be just as good, if not better, you know, than me. Uh, And oftentimes that person will be a colleague or will be someone on my team who I'm looking for, you know, I'm looking for growth, you know, leadership development, growth opportunities for them as well. Um, it's also knowing about, you know, who to say no to and who not to say no to, right? So, you know, there's a, that's important. Uh, you need to recognize uh, who you can say no to and who you should not say no to. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if you don't know that yourself, you need to ask for advice from someone who can help you either say no or, or, or not say no. And, and that's the other thing. It's sometimes it's better for someone else to say that, you know, no for you instead. So there's a lot of different, you know, tax, uh, uh, tactics to figuring that out. Um, but uh, it's important to learn those early on. I want to get to your um, board involvement because you mentioned a few, but first I want to pose a question from the audience. How do you handle microaggressions in the workplace? Hmm. It's a great question. You know, um, sometimes, you know, I think there are microaggressions that you, that you notice. Um, there are some that you, sometimes you don't notice and maybe that's okay. So, uh, sometimes, um, uh, but the ones that you do notice, uh, I always try and figure out where, the, where, 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 where that's coming from. You know, is that person having a bad day? Is there something going on in their life, in their family, in their relationship that I'm just not aware of? Uh, I, I think that as minorities, most of us tend to be pretty, how would I say, um, uh, sympathetic, empathetic or empathetic? Yeah, empathetic. We can put ourselves in other people's shoes um, because we know what it feels like, right, to be oppressed, to, to, to receive these kind of, you know, microaggressions if they're in a, you know, in a particular, if it has something to do with your ethnicity or your gender or your, or your sexual orientation or your disability status, whatever. 
Um, but I tend to try and put myself in their shoes. I am, I, I tend to think that, uh, and this is my mindset, uh, I'm more of an optimist. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a glass, you know, I'm a half glass full sort of, you know, uh, mindset uh, that, that I typically go with. Uh, so I tend to think they're coming from a better place till they prove me wrong. You know, and then look, when they do prove me wrong, I'll confront it. You know, I will confront it and try and have a constructive dialogue around what's going on. And if it can be a teachable moment for them, then I'll do that, you know, and, and uh, I try and forgive, you know, uh, I may not forget, but I do always try and forgive and move on. As long as that person's coming at it from um, uh, a place where they want to learn. Yes, they may be ignorant on the topic, but they're open to learning or there's something going on in their life. Uh, that's where that's that I'm willing to make that investment. And then if they're not coming from a good place, then you know what? The, the world is big enough. There's enough room for us to maneuver uh, and, and not have to engage directly going forward, I guess. Yeah, of course. So tell us about the Trevor Project. There are obviously lots of LGBTQ plus nonprofits out there. How did you what made you interested in the Trevor Project? Tell us a little bit about what they do. Well, they are such a fascinating or fascinating organization. So uh, with an incredible mission. So the Trevor Project started in 1998 uh, and not many people may realize this, but um, there's actually a movie uh, called Trevor. Uh, that was a short film that was nominated for uh, an Oscar uh, for, for best short film. And uh, it won. And the filmmakers, uh, I remember when they, you know, when they received that award, uh, they, uh, they received the Academy Award. Uh, and the, the, the filmmakers um, did this because I think they wanted to, you know, get a, posit- a message of positivity out to LGBTQ plus youth. Um, and, you know, some of the filmmakers were, were LGBTQ themselves, uh, so they remember what that was like. And others were just allies uh, who were very supportive. And what happened is when they won, uh, all of a sudden, they, they raised the visibility of LGBTQ plus youth. And they started getting flooded with um, uh, calls from kids, from LGBTQ plus kids who were in crisis. Uh, needed help, needed support, uh, weren't supported at home. And in order to uh, to really support and receive those calls, they set up, they created the Trevor Project. And it was a, you know, it was really a, a, a phone number uh, and a call center to take these calls. And so since then, I mean, um, you know, we've, we've, we've grown tremendously. Uh, we're now, I think, the uh, second largest LG, well, we're the second largest suicide prevention and crisis management organization in certainly in the country, perhaps in the world. Uh, we certainly are for LGBTQ plus kids uh, and youth, uh, and have been for for quite some time. And so we are very focused on uh, providing services uh, to LGBTQ plus uh, youth uh, who are in crisis, uh, who are contemplating suicide. Uh, and we direct them and get them connected with the right resources uh, to help them through what they're going through. And since then, we've also expanded into advocacy uh, around issues against, you know, uh, lobbying against conversion therapy uh, for, for young kids uh, to just general mental health issues and, uh, uh, and, and, and launching, you know, the most vast, comprehensive LG, LGBTQ plus youth 
mental health survey, which I can tell you a bit more about what we do there, but it's just an incredible mission, um, wonderful board, wonderful uh, organization and staff uh, who are literally saving kids' lives every day. We know there's a need uh, of about 1.8 million LGBTQ plus youth who need these services. We're probably uh, serving about uh, 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 three or 400,000. We've got a ways to go uh, and we're gonna continue with our mission till we until we can do that. Tell us too about the other boards that you are involved with. So there's USO Board of Governors and the Goldman Sachs launch with GS. <clears throat> Tell us about those and how you got involved. So the you know Board of Governors for the USO uh, that was 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 actually through my work with the Obama uh, administration. Uh, I, I was uh, a big supporter of, of uh, Barack Obama and his administration. Um, Folks that were close to the White House reached out to me about serving in the administration at the time. I was was work had just joined EY, um, and uh, they asked if I would join. Uh, and and I said, well, you know, not in a position to do that full time right now. But uh, are there part time opportunities? And so that's when uh, I got plugged in with um, the White House uh, uh, Office of Personnel, and we we started ex- exploring appointment opportunities, political. Uh, appointment opportunities and the board of governors serving on the board of governors uh for the uso was one of those opportunities and uh, so the president of the united states gets up to six presidential appointments they can make to the board of governors of the uso and the reason for that is back uh back when uh the uso was first commissioned by uh by fdr you know franklin delano roosevelt to prepare the country to go into world war ii he knew that troop morale was going to be decisive in beating the Axis powers, and so um, uh, so he created and commissioned uh, the USO. And uh, as a result of that, the President of the United States is the honorary chairman of that board and gets up to you know six six appointments. And so that's how I I got I got plugged into uh, the USO, and it made a lot of sense given I grew up um, on military bases. My father is a veteran. My my uncle is a veteran. My grandfather is a veteran. Uh, both grandfathers were veterans, uh, and so they were quite um, deliberate about uh, matching me with that board and that organization. And that was back in 2014, and I continue to serve. It's one of the greatest honors of my life. Uh, and then working with uh, Goldman Sachs, um, who is uh, obviously an incredible uh, uh, organization company. Um, uh, they're a great client uh, of EY's, uh, but I was approached by by a, a good friend there. Uh, who nominated me, um, uh, and uh, uh, it was just a, a great opportunity to serve on this uh, advisory council uh, that's really focused on advancing uh, uh, and developing and investing in more women, black, and uh, Latinx tech founders. Uh, there was this recognition that not enough growth capital and venture capital goes to these minorities, and in fact, I think. Uh, uh, you know, less than 2% goes to black and brown uh, tech founders. And if you're, if, if you're talking about, you know, black and brown women tech founders, it's less than 1% or 1% of all the venture capital out there. And so a company like Goldman, when they put their resources behind that, they can actually move the needle. And so uh, they asked me to join that, uh, that advisory council that was about two years ago. Um, uh, and I'll have to, you know, big shout out to Susie Sher. 
who uh, uh, is uh, a chairman, uh, vice uh, chairman at Goldman, who had nominated me. But it's been a great uh, experience. We're now in our third, uh, uh, going to be starting our third class of uh, black uh, and Latinx and women uh, tech founders who we are investing in, Goldman is investing in, uh, and developing and cultivating. So, uh, and then finally, you know, I think we already talked about uh, the Trevor Project, but uh, you know, I continue to serve on that board uh, and, and and will will for hopefully uh, a good amount of time. For those who are interested in serving on a board, uh, but they don't know kind of how that happens, sometimes it, it's a little vague how people actually join a board, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do how do you kind of <clears throat> help people figure out? what kind of board they'd like to join, how they go about doing it. Like, how does it work in your mind and and how do you help people achieve that if that's one of their goals? Sure. Well, look, I, you know, getting on a board, you know, the first one's always the hardest one, it, whether it's a nonprofit uh, or it's a, a for-profit or a public company uh, board. The first one's always the hardest to get on. But then once you get on on one, it's almost like, all right, you've cleared this threshold, right? Um, uh, and so you're, you're gonna, you know, it's gonna get easier from there. But you know, joining your first nonprofit board, uh, there's many different ways to do that. Uh, certainly talking to uh, people who serve on nonprofit boards, uh, learning from them, asking them what their experience was, uh, letting them know that you're interested uh, oftentimes, not everyone assumes you're going to be interested in serving on a board. So you really got to put that out there, um, you know, into, into the ecosystem that you're in. Uh, volunteering for that organization is also a good way, right? Because ultimately, you want to be passionate about the mission. And if you're passionate about the mission uh, and you're authentic about that, you're going to do even better as a board member. You're going to do better as a fundraiser. Uh, you're going to bring even more value um, if, again, uh, you're, you're passionate about that. And so these are some ways to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's sort of putting it out there. You want to put it out there that you're interested. Sometimes uh, these organizations have junior boards. Uh, so, in fact, uh, you know, when I first when I took on my first board, um, which was for the New York LGBT Community Center here in New York, uh, I, 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 that opportunity came to me because I, I actually put myself out there. Uh, so, you know, so doing speaking engagements, uh, makes sense serving on panels. That's a great way to build visibility. And so it just happened to be that I was on a panel at the New York LGBT community center produced by them, uh, where I guess some of the board members, you know, got to see me in action. Right. And, uh, it approached me after that. And so, putting yourself out there, doing speaking engagements, speaking at conferences. Uh, those are also really good ways. And then, as I mentioned, you know, sometimes they have junior boards. And that was one of the first committees that I stood up uh, as a board member uh, for the New York LGBT Community Center was uh, the, the Young Leaders Council for this reason, to cultivate the next generation of donors for the center, but also future board members. That's great advice. Uh this is a question from the audience and we've talked before about your advice for those thinking about coming out at work. And the question is, what are some of the ways a leader can create an affirmative environment where someone who is closeted would feel comfortable coming out? So I think, uh, you know, like there's obviously leaders who are, who are LGBT, right. Um, uh, And then there are allies. So I think just talking openly and inclusively uh, about um, about your life, 
you know, if you're not gay or you're not LGBTQ plus, you certainly probably have a brother or a sister or a cousin or a nephew or a parent, you know, um, or a good friend. Uh, it's quite likely that someone important in your life uh, is LGBTQ plus. Well, you know what? Talk about that person openly. Talk about your relationship with them. Um, you know, talk about your support for uh, LGBTQ plus issues. You know, if you're an ally, if you're if you're if you are a member of the LGBTQ plus uh, you know, LGBTQ plus community, well, be open about it. You know, talk openly about your partner or 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 the charities that you support that LGBTQ plus. Just acknowledging their existence uh, and just talking openly about it can literally save someone's life, literally save someone's life, let alone their job. So I would just say, talk openly about it. Um, I can give you an example, um, which I mean, I, I think he's just absolutely amazing. Uh, he's been my boss for a very long time. His name's Rich Generate. Uh, he's a vice chairman at EY, uh, and he runs our East region. And he is our, uh, our, our uh, executive sponsor for our LGBT uh, business resource group. And he's an ally. He is a passionate, uh, vocal ally. Uh, and he talks about his son, Henry, who is transgender uh, and came out. Uh, and, you know, Rich and, and, and his wife, Lisa, are like Henry's biggest advocates um, and champions. And so he talks about it openly uh, on all the different platforms that he has. And uh, I think it's incumbent on all leaders to do the same. We've used the term ally quite a bit today, and I want to drill down on that term for a minute. If someone wants to be an ally, and I, of course you just mentioned a couple ways, but if someone wants to be a better ally in their workplace, how can they go about doing that? So let's say you could tell me directly, uh, I'm not a member of the LGBTQ plus community um, exactly, but I want to be an ally. I want to make sure that I work in a place where people can be authentically themselves. What would you tell me? I would tell you to, it, it could be simple things such as invite me and my husband on a double date with your, you and your husband, right? Uh, you know, or invite, uh, you know, invite, you know, uh, someone who works for you or works with you who's LGBT you know, to a party you know, that you're hosting uh, or barbecue, you know, be very open about bringing, you know, uh, their, you know, whoever they want, um, getting smart on the use of pronouns, you know, not, not making assumptions, um, about, about someone's sexuality, uh, or, or even gender. Uh, so these, you know, there's just, there are little things that you can do. You just got to be conscious of it and, 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 and raise awareness also educate yourself, uh, get engaged with, uh, you know, your, for your company's, you know, LGBT and allies employee resource group. Uh, many of the members of our employee resource groups are allies because they care, um, about, uh, about the cause, uh, and they feel welcome, uh, and they're included. And then I think what else, I mean, those are probably some of the, some of the main ones, but I would say the other thing is, is just learn. You know, ask, ask questions, you know, I, I mean, I never uh, have uh, any concerns about 
any of my straight ally friends asking me questions. I mean, how else are they going to learn? Um, it's, I, I, I won't get offended. And I, I give them the space uh, to make mistakes. Because you know, if you don't, then I think it's, 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 it's going to be harder for people to help. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you are an author. So tell us about I Am Eco Warrior. So that was uh, one of one of my strategic side gigs that I took on uh, about 10 years ago. And, uh, you know, I guess it was prescient. I didn't think 10 years later I'd, I'd become, you know, the head of ESG sustainability for EY. But uh, that experience absolutely laid the foundation for my job today uh, and, the, and the leadership job that I have today at uh, EY. So that was really born out of curiosity. Uh, a good friend of mine uh, who was a fashion photographer was telling me about his new project that he wanted to showcase environmentalists in a different light and showcase their causes and the diversity within the environmental movement and the different uh, ways in which to tackle what we knew uh, was was going to be the biggest challenge facing the human race, frankly, um, is, is, is the sustainability of our planet uh, and our human race. And so when the opportunity came up to, to learn more about it, um, I, I, I jumped at it and I tried to support him. I try and support a lot of artists, um, uh, uh, creative folks. Um, uh, many, many of them are my friends and I, I, I do support them. And so this one is a project where I was very interested in the subject matter I wanted to learn. And I also wanted to help, um, help, help a friend uh, and an artist. And so that's sort of how that started. Uh, and I remember um, he called me in a panic one day because he didn't have someone to interview Fabian Cousteau, uh, the person who he had lined up, who was an actual reporter, backed out at the last minute. And he said, would you do it? You know, and I'm like, well, let's see, I'm not an expert in ocean, you know, in, in ocean, you know, in, in the oceans. And, um, but I am good at interviewing. I do connect with people. I know how to relate with people and I can get a little smart on it. I can, uh, smart enough that I can ask, you know, some, some, uh, some, uh, uh, smart questions. And so that's what I did. Uh, and I just sort of threw myself into it after that interview. Uh, and so I then uh, took on uh, really the role of, of interviewer for the book. And the book itself is this beautiful photographic sort of journalistic copy table book where we shot them um, uh, sort of editorial style. Uh, and then I did uh, most of the interviews in the book. And, and it was a great way to learn about sustainability around the environmental movement, and the different, the diversity of, uh, of people who were involved in it from titans of industry to uh, artists to uh, scientists to politicians to heads of states. Uh, and so that really formed the foundation of uh, uh, my interest in um, sustainability. I love that you, you know, you weren't afraid to take that on despite maybe not <clears throat> being as knowledgeable as, as you would have liked. And um, as somebody who interviews people uh, myself, uh, I, I know that it's true that, <clears throat> of course, you want to be knowledgeable, but you also want to show up with some gaps so that your curiosity is authentic, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. I can relate to you in that way. Um, and I'd also like, before we go, I'd love for you to share a little bit about the Outlist as well, another one of your passion projects. 
Sure, and I'll, I'll share two, actually, because uh, I'm working on, on another film right now. Uh, but The Outlist uh, was a project that actually was, that I, I, I fell into as a result of I Am Eco Warrior, because the, the fashion photographer, Roger Monks, who was a friend of mine, uh, was very close with Timothy Greenfield Sanders, who is a very prolific uh, portrait photographer and film documentarian. And, you know, Roger reached out to Timothy and said, hey, for your new film project, which he knew he wanted to uh, do a, a documentary on the next generation of, of LGBT civil rights activists that were born for the most part, you know, in and around uh, the time of Prop, Proposition uh, 8 in California, where uh, marriage equality was struck down. If you remember that in 2008. And, uh, and so Timothy wanted to get smarter on the issues, you know, the cases that were going through uh, the court system, the different types of legislation that were going to impact marriage equality and other LGBT issues. And, uh, and so I was introduced to him and I, I, I was, you know, excited about the project and what he was trying to get done. I just sort of just said, listen, happy to be a sounding board. And so he took me up on that, you know, and it just start, literally just started off as being a sounding board. And then it progressed into, well, who do you think should be in the film? Who should we profile? Do you know them? Can you make an introduction? What things should we cover? Oh, by the way, how do we raise money for this? Do you know any people you can introduce us to? And so it sort of snowballed from there. And uh, lo and behold, the uh, the film team, uh, Timothy and Sam McConnell, they said, well, would you like to be a, a producer on the film? And I was like, what is a, exactly does a film producer do? <laughs> they said, well, what you're doing. And so that is how I fell into like becoming a producer. And, you know, fast forward eight years later, I'm, I'm, I'm doing something similar with a, a film called Firebird, which is a feature film uh, that's based on a true story and also has a social impact, uh, you know, uh, component to it. Uh, and so, uh, again, uh, just born out of trying to get uh, important social impact messages out, uh, helping uh, artists uh, and just getting good stories out there um, that, again, align well with my day job with EY's values uh, around social justice, div uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and my own personal passions. Last question for you is, you describe yourself as a creative person, um, and, and you clearly are. <clears throat> it's not a term, it's not a word that we often associate with, you know, finance and accounting. So how do you incorporate that into your gay job? Obviously you have your side gigs, and so that makes total sense, but in kind of your everyday um, position at EY, how do you incorporate creativity and that sort of entrepreneurial spirit? What do you think? Well, uh, just because I, I, I work, you know, in, in professional services or financial services and uh, in numbers and with, with a lot of number crunchers, uh, doesn't mean that um, that's all we do, or should we do? Nor should we just do that, right? Yes, um, our work is is grounded in data, right? That's important, uh, and you know, oftentimes really quantitative data. But increasingly, the biggest challenges facing the world and facing our clients aren't just going to be solved by numbers. Many of these issues are people issues, right? It's teaming issues, it's collaboration issues, it's bringing different. Um, you know, groups and companies and NGOs and regulatory bodies and entrepreneurs together, right? Uh, and yes, grounded in data, grounded in technology, grounded in the numbers. Uh, but for me, 
I, I need balance. I, I, I'm, 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 at, I'm at my best when I'm balanced. And having sort of the creative side of me, uh, along with the business side of me, uh, makes me a better leader, makes me more innovative, uh, makes me more creative at work. And by the way, allows me to work with all kinds of personalities. The creative and the business guys and gals, right? Uh, and then also be a bridge between the two, which can be quite powerful when you're trying to solve mega challenges facing the world, facing your company, uh, so on and so forth. I feel like we barely scratched the surface of all that you do, um, but unfortunately we are out of time. So Orlin, thank you so much for your openness and for sharing your truth today. And uh, just as we were talking, I'm, I'm think, keep thinking to myself, I've never met somebody who so completely embraces or embodies ESG the way that you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like a walking ESG. So um, I, I know I'm not alone in saying that it, it was a very inspiring conversation for me. So just really appreciate your time and, and again, your openness. Well, Olivia, what a pleasure uh, it was to have this fireside chat with you and uh, your audience. Thank you for the opportunity. I really enjoyed it.